Good morning, City Church. My name is Emma. I serve on two teams. That is City Mix. That's our middle school program. And I also help with uh, prayer and communion. I will be reading out of Matthew today, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill that was this was, took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt and a fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as, just, did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emma. Yes, give her some love. Well, good morning again, everyone. As Cody mentioned, today is Palm Sunday and also the beginning of Holy Week, this sacred span of time between Palm Sunday and Easter. This marks the final week on earth for Jesus. It's a centerpiece of our faith. Palm Sunday is a famous moment in the life of Jesus, and I would guess a pretty familiar story to the majority of us in this room, the triumphant entrance of Jesus. We've been walking through this current series, nevertheless, and we've been going, going through the season all through the season of Lent, and we've covered so many different areas of our lives and been challenged into deeper places of surrender. We've been keeping at the center of our story and this series, this grueling and intimate moment between Jesus and the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays the agonizing prayer to please If at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Today, as we look to bring this series to a close, we're going to, with our story and from our text today, let our text lead us into what it looks like to surrender our expectations. What happens when our expectation of Jesus doesn't line up with our reality? What happens when what we expect from Jesus simply doesn't happen or doesn't look or feel anything like we thought it would? Expectations are a funny thing. They can lead to so much joy and they can add color and anticipation to our lives. I've heard it said that so much of the joy and all of the good feelings that you have when it comes to taking a trip or a vacation or an outing is tied up into the actual planning of the trip or the vacation. During COVID, when no one was allowed to do anything or go anywhere, I read articles about going ahead and planning a trip or an outing that you know you aren't gonna go on. And so just planning and doing all the things and letting that release all of the good endorphins in your body, even though you know you're not gonna go on that trip. I, I don't really get this because I don't like 
to plan vacations and trips, maybe because I do like so much other planning in my everyday life that I don't like it. But my husband Bodie really loves to do this. He, if he's lost on his phone, I can guess a couple of different things. Um, the first thing is that he spiraled down a meme hole and he's just looking at all of the memes that he can find and sending me any of the ones that are share worthy, okay? Um, and then also, if it's not that, then he's probably on VRBO or Google Maps, um, planning some vacation or um, in his mind buying some sort of vacation home that is actually never gonna happen. <laughs> um, I, I, but expect, that's what expectations do. Expectations can also lead to major disappointment. We talk about this when it comes to marriage, um, when we're in premarital counseling with people, but honestly, it applies to all areas of life. When our expectations are here and our reality is here, what lives in the middle here is disappointment. I can't tell you the amount of times that I have hinted to a surprise to my kids, like we're on our way to the school, I'm like, I have a little surprise for you guys after school, and only to have them start guessing what it's going to be, and it spirals out of control, and I'm like, y'all need to pull back your expectations, okay? So what now is going to be a fun little surprise is a major disappointment because we're not going to Disney World after school. I'm like, child please, we're going to Brahms for a single scoop, okay? That's what we're doing, and now they're disappointed. So we're making our way to the triumphant entrance of Jesus, but to rewind just a little bit more and set the stage for today, we read in Luke chapter nine, verse 51, this line. When the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Our scene for today opens with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and both prophetically and historically, this is significant because it was prophesied hundreds of years prior that the priest king or the Messiah who was destined to bring all of the nations to the God of David would stand on this mount. And this is a people group who are very familiar with the prophecies and would most definitely have been checking things off the list that they know to be signs of the Messiah that was to come. And so we read in Zechariah one of these prophecies. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a, don a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The stage for our story today is being set. This is bound to be a grand moment. Jesus and his ministry had been gaining some steam and they had just come off of a pretty spectacular event, raising Lazarus from the dead. And as you can imagine, the word on the street was beginning to spread about this man who raises the dead to life. And everyone was wanting to encounter this person and see and experience what is happening with this Jesus. And there is an undercurrent of allegiance that is beginning to be declared. You see, the people are beginning to make connections to the fact that, hey, this man could be the one. He could be the one that we have been waiting for. Remember, the disciples and all of the Jewish people were at the time looking for their king. All their lives, they had read about this Messiah that Yahweh would provide, and he would be the Lord of all the nations, and that he, though lowly and humble, would still overthrow the oppression and the evil in the world around them. And Rome was in power and ruling over them and oppressing them. 
And make no mistake about it, with this entrance, Jesus is making a statement. Jesus enters in as a prophetic protest of the powers of Rome. But the statement that Jesus is making here will not be followed up by the actions that the crowds are anticipating. But the people were beginning to write a story in their heads as we do so often. The energy is rising up and the narrative is being written. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, and not just Israel, but all the the earth. And this, this will be his capital city. From here, he will rule and reign. And I can just imagine, imagine with me this morning the energy of this moment. It had to be electrifying, especially for those who had been following Jesus for some time up until this point. There's no way that they did not think, this is it. This is the moment. This is the moment that we have been waiting for, the time and the opportunity that we have been waiting for. And as they enter, things start to happen. We are told in the scripture that Emma just read that people began to spread their cloaks out on the ground. Some cut palm branches and spread them out and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I always like to remind myself and others in the room that maybe you grew up in church and maybe your church had Easter plays when you were growing up and a reminder that it probably did not look like your Easter play with Sister Sue in her Bible costume waving the palm branches gently back and forth. This is the picture that I automatically have, but that is not what this looked like. This was a provocative moment. It was Passover the salvation celebration of the Jewish faith and the world would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate in this festival. The city that normally held around 30,000 people would have around 180,000 people during this time. The crowds were not small. I read recently that because of the crowds during this time, the Roman military would have had their own entrance as well. They would make a statement and make an entrance and come in all together because of the crowds as, as a statement to say, we see all of these people here, but don't you forget who's ultimately in charge. Don't forget who's actually ruling over this place. So think about it in light of that, with that background. They've had their entrance. Now Jesus has his entrance. This was not subtle. This was a riot. It was a statement. It was fists in the air, battle cry. Again, The Jewish people were looking for a savior, one to deliver them. And this was the time to do it. If there ever is a time, if we're writing a perfect story, man, this would have been it. Everyone's here. We're all here, we're all gathered. The world is watching. We're here to celebrate our salvation event from the time of Moses. You delivered us once from our oppressors. Now he's gonna do it again in the same way that he did before. That's a story, right? The symbol of laying down the coats is similar to how we lay out the red carpet. And it's also a sign that they would give anything else that they had for him as well. The cut palm branches was a symbol not only of worship, but was also more likely a symbol of rebellion. In Jerusalem, the raising of the palm branches pointed back to the Maccabean revolt. And it was a defiant and provocative symbol to Rome that they would no longer be under their rule. This was not an Easter play of old. This was a protest, a scene and an uproar. For much of Jesus' ministry, he urged people to be quiet about who he was. 
When he healed people, he told them not to say anything. When he confronted demons who recognized him as the son of God, he told them to keep their mouth shut. That's because this, it wasn't time for him to declare himself as Messiah, but on Palm Sunday, the time had come. In fact, we read Jesus' words in Luke saying, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. But when Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, he knew that this was coming. He knew that this is what they would be thinking. He knew what they would be hoping for. He knew what kind of revolution that they wanted. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus wept over the city. This is only the second time in the Gospels that they tell us that Jesus wept. And he doesn't weep for himself. He weeps for the city. He weeps for the people, the crowds, the ones who are now shouting Hosanna and protesting and shouting and raising their voice in protest and allegiance to him. Because people love to be amazed. So often in the life of Jesus, we find him doing something really amazing and then following it up with, do not be amazed. Why is this? Ronald Rollheiser says this about amazement. He, Jesus, knows that the same people who are so impressed with him one day, so as to want to make him king, need very little altering of circumstance to begin the chant, crucify him. Amazement lies at the root of hype, ideology, groupthink, mob mentality, gang rapes, and crucifixions. Crowds do not think. They act out of a blind energy, and that carries immense dangers. Indeed, scripture scholars tell us that in the Gospels, most every time the word crowd is used, one could supply the word mindless. Jesus knows this deeply, and he weeps for the people. In other words, he weeps for us. Don't get it twisted like we don't get caught up in the same way that this crowd got caught up in it. They longed for him to become the leader of an anti-Rome insurrection, and we read that he quietly made his way through town. The humble and lowly Jesus we know to be on his way to the cross. When he turned his face to Jerusalem, Jesus had another vision in his head. Jerusalem meant one thing for Jesus, certain death. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he set his face to die. And so what is he starting here in this moment? He is presenting himself as Messiah to Jerusalem, but radically redefining what that means from every angle. And how does he begin to do, to do this? What's the next thing that we see him do? Where do you go after an entrance and a statement like that? You can't leave all that momentum hanging there. That's like marketing 101. We've got all these people, they're revved up, they're ready to go, now what, now what do we do? And so we see that Jesus then makes his way to another famous scene of our faith. You may know it as the turning of the tables. In our text from today, Matthew places this scene as the very next thing we read. We end this Palm Sunday story in verse 11. Verse 12 starts this story. Mark and Luke both place one small story in between, and John places this turning of the tables temple moment right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. 
Some say that John did this at, for thematic reasons, like the temple moment is so important, it's almost like a lens that you look his entire ministry through. And some say he may have cleansed it twice. Either way, this is a extremely important moment in the life of Jesus. And so today, Matthew leads us into this scene. After this grand moment, this triumphant entrance of Jesus, Jesus then heads to the temple and starts to turn over tables as a calculated statement. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is a statement against the institution that did not resemble the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to usher in. This is a moment where the Messiah shows us what the kingdom of God is really like, but again, in a way that most around him were completely confused by, taken aback by, and as we read in this text, infuriated by. Jesus' first stop was to the church. He went to the heart of the institution and casts out this false religion and invites those who were on the outside to the inside, eliminating separations. This is poetic now, but it was confusing at the time at best, and as I said, infuriating at worst. Here's what we know. Jesus came to declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it will not look like the ways of this world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it will not come in the way that you think. It will not come through power and influence and force, but it will come through love and justice and mercy and sacrifice. The first will be last, the last will be first. The outsiders are now insiders. The kingdom is simple, humble, and backwards. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it will not look like the ways of this world. The people were right, the crowds were right. Their king had come, but so many people missed it because they already had a specific outcome written out in their head. Their king had come, but when they began to drop like flies when he began to go off script and do things that they thought that he would never do. And all of this brings us back to the questions that we started off with this morning. What do we do when Jesus doesn't show up in the way that we expect him to? What happens when our expectation of how we want him to show up and the reality of the outcome don't line up the way we hoped for or that we believed for or that we prayed for? What will we do when the saving we long for doesn't come in the way that we expect it to? It's so easy to turn our nose at the people from our text today, at the crowd from today, and read that quote and say, crowds are mindless, yes, I get it, but that's not me. 
but they were looking for relief. Let's place ourselves into this narrative and into their side of the story. They were looking for something to give in their favor, for someone to save them from the oppression that they had been living in and under for years. They had been praying and believing and hoping for the Messiah to come, and this felt like the moment. When we just walked through it, doesn't it feel like that would have been the moment? Don't you realize it would have been so easy to get caught up into that? And they were expecting and hoping for that, and none of this is bad. None of that is a bad thing, expectation and hope. It was just their expectation of how he was going to do it is what got them into trouble. I had the privilege uh, last year of preaching the Palm Sunday message and I was able to share a deeper version of the story of City Church West. Some of you may or may not know this, but Bodie and I came to City Church as church planters. And through a series of events, we ended up planting a location of City Church in West Tulsa, affectionately called City West. We built our team, our family moved to West Tulsa and we worked and worked and worked and then we launched in September of 2019 and then a few months later, everyone's world turned upside down with the coming of COVID and ours as well. And we just did not have the time that we needed to build um, the people and the relationships in an already really difficult place to plant and at, by the end of 2020, we made the decision to come back together as one church and one location. And it was really, really difficult and hard. It did not turn out anything like we thought it would, like we expected to. It didn't look anything like we thought it would or expected it to. And I thought today I would rewind a little bit more to give you even more context to that story. At about a year and a half before we planted and came to City Church, Bodie and I were pastors at a smaller church. We were small but mighty. And we loved these people so much. We loved these people so much. We had basically grown our entire adult life. We got married and we went to that church. Our entire ministry had been forged and formed in that place. And we were at the time praying for what is Next, in this season of this church, we had been praying for how to lead through. It was a difficult time through transition and tough moments, and uh, it had been a tough few years, and we were just praying for what was next. And through a few God-ordained conversations, we began to have conversations of what it would look like to merge churches with another church in our town. And we prayed and prayed, and it was one of those times where God just directly spoke to Bodhi in one of those really clear ways that you don't always get all of the time with the green light to move forward and go forward with this plan. And so we did, full of hope and full of expectation. And it was the most painful time in ministry that I've ever walked through. It did not look anything like we thought or expected it to. And when our time there ended, we walked away broken and disillusioned. God, did we hear you wrong? Did we hear what you said wrong? Did we make the mistake? Where was the disconnect? We couldn't have heard you wrong. You spoke so clearly and not just once, but multiple times and not just to us, to many people around us. We sought wise counsel. We checked all the boxes that we thought we were supposed to check. What did we miss? And we felt like after some time to pray, we thought, well, maybe this is a chance for us to church plant. 
We had wanted a church plant for years. We had been praying about it and we just couldn't see a road to it. So we thought, well, maybe our church would be a, a church planting church and church planters would come here and we would feed into them and then send them out. And maybe that's our role in church planting. But now we thought, well, maybe this was the path to that. And so we began to heal and regroup. We came to City Church because we knew it was ascending church and that we could heal here and that we could go out. And then the City West ball began to roll. And I already told you how that story ended up. That's a lot to process with God. That's two big steps right in a row, not even anything in between. Two big steps of that. Um, I was, it was confirmed in first service that it's Indiana Jones, the movie where he takes the step, but the stone doesn't appear until it actually, until he puts his weight down. That's the picture that I have in my mind always. I must have heard a sermon about that years and years ago. Anytime there's a step of faith, that's what I see. And it was two of those. And we put our weight down on the, expecting for a stone to appear and we fell through. Both times. That's a lot of questions on the table about faith and ministry and hearing God's voice and on and on and on. Now, I'm not here today to dash your hopes and your expectations of God. It is right and good to have those. He is big and all-knowing and he's the only thing that can hold the weight of all of our hope and all of our expectations. The only one it can be fully placed on. But what I am here today to do is to give you the reality of life and how life goes. Because we can fully place our hope on God and expect him to move on our behalf, but it has to be coupled with the spiritual practice of surrendering control of the ultimate outcome to him. Like, I fully believe, God, that you are gonna move, that you are gonna do this thing, that you're gonna work on my behalf, but I ultimately give the full outcome to you and I place it into your loving hands. I'm gonna try to resist on writing my own story and let you write it. The deep reality is that this whole series is centered around an unanswered prayer, or at least in the way that we sometimes define unanswered prayer. Jesus sincerely, deeply, agonizingly prayed for another way, a different path, another outcome that in the end didn't come. But what we find is this powerful framework of prayer Jesus says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. God, not only do I believe, I know that you can do this. I have hope in you. My expectation is that you would move, but nevertheless. God, I know that you can move. I know that you can heal. I know that you can change this situation, but nevertheless. Nevertheless, I trust that your perspective is greater than mine. I trust that my view is limited, and so give me eyes to see, give me your vision. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's a few things that Jesus is teaching us in this moment. Expectations tied solely to a predetermined end will lead to a disillusioned faith. Jesus modeled for us surrendered prayer reliant on relationship, not results. Abba, I want this to change, but nevertheless, either way, I have to have you with me. I have to have you with me either way. Abba, can it be another way? Because I would appreciate it if it could be another way. 
But no matter what, I am laid bare before you, honest and vulnerable, laying out all of my feelings, all of my emotions and thoughts, and I'm inviting you in to do what only you can do in and through me. Because in the middle of our disillusionment, we can miss the even greater story that God is trying to write with our lives. We can miss all of those things because again, our view is limited. We are limited as humans, we are finite. We can only see what's right in front of us in the moment. And so if the connection isn't made for what I was hoping for or specifically what I prayed for, and we don't see that specific thing, it's so easy to render Jesus useless because he didn't show up on our terms. This is why the crowds around Jesus grew smaller and smaller in the week leading to the cross. Because without true relationship, unmet expectations are an easy out. The people who were closest to Jesus, his disciples, his, his people, their story didn't just begin with him. They have history. They've been walking with him, learning from him, being loved and rebuked by him. They've seen him show up in surprising ways before. They've seen him show up and exceed expectation. And they've seen him show up and do surprising things. They watched the crowds around Jesus grow bigger and bigger after miraculous moments. And they watched the majority of those crowds walk away after he started getting weird and talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. As we've already laid out, we have to infer that the disciples were no different in their expectations. They had to be thinking, this is it, this is the moment, this is why we've been following him all this time up until this point. This is gonna pay off all this sacrifice of these last few years, this is it. They had to be thinking that. And so we know they must have been a little disappointed and a, and a little bit confused, but their history their relationship, their discipleship up to that moment caused them to once again stay and trust in the middle of their feelings. They have learned up until this point with their walk with Jesus that Jesus says things in the kingdom are not often as they seem. And that he does unexpected things with the greatest good in mind. And so in this moment today, they stay. And so I ask us again this morning, what do we do when Jesus doesn't show up in the way we expect him to? What do we do when we're asking him to change a situation and his first stop is with us and to change us? What do we do with our disappointment? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel let down or disappointed. I just, you're not alone. You are not alone. But my encouragement for you today, no matter how difficult it may be, is to look back on other chapters of your life. Build trust by viewing your life and this specific circumstance through the lens of relationship, not results. As the disciples must have done, look back and remember his faithfulness and surrender control of a specific outcome and realize his ways are not mine. His vision is greater. God, give us eyes to see. Again, the wild thing is we know from our text that Jesus is answering the cries of the people. He was fulfilling in real time the long awaited prophecy. That day riding into Jerusalem, he is answering all of their prayers and saying yes to all of their desires 
He's just doing it at the deepest level in a way that they could not see at the time. They were longing for a conquering king and he came as a suffering servant. They were looking for someone to come through town and begin overthrowing the government and he went straight to the church and began flipping over tables. Tyler Staten says this, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is not about blessing things as they are presently arranged, but changing them until the present arrangement reflects the one God intends. Everything is at risk when Jesus begins his entry into Jerusalem. Everything is at risk when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem. And the same is true when Jesus enters your life and mine. This is costly and beautiful. Stand with me this morning. Fleming Rutledge calls Palm Sunday the Trojan horse of the Christian calendar. We're lured in by the festivity and quickly knocked over the head with the brutality of Good Friday. The reality is this, there is no path from Palm Sunday to Easter without walking through death. Holy Week beckons us to behold Jesus to behold Jesus in all of his glory. And that is what we do each and every week here at City Church when we come around the table. So let's just take a few moments to prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning. God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided and disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Jesus. Each week when we come to the table, we are centering our life around not our story, but his story. As we, as I just said, Holy Week beckons us to behold Jesus and all he has done. And so we take space and we take time each and every week to do this. And I love so much that it takes us time to do it. It's slow and like not flashy. I think it's 
so countercultural to do it this way. And I know for myself, and I can pretty much speak for everyone in the room, we need slow and not flashy things in our lives. And weekly rhythms of that, or daily rhythms of that. And so it's so beautiful that it takes us time to do this. It gives us time to set in the space to behold Him and everything that He has done and His story and recenter our hearts and our lives. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it and He blessed it and He said, this is my body. Broken for you. This is my body broken so that you can be made whole. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the cup of my suffering, of my blood poured out and shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. practice open communion here at City Church, which simply means if you are hungry for Jesus, then there's a place for you at the table. I'm going to ask our prayer and communion team to come forward and prepare the elements. If you would just close your eyes for just a moment. Jesus, we behold you today. all of your goodness, all of your mercy, and all of your kindness. God, we learned so much from your garden prayer. And no matter what we are feeling this morning, maybe there are some of us who feel major disappointment. We feel let down. We believed for something, we hoped for something, we prayed for something, and we're disappointed today. We know, God, that that doesn't scare you. We bring everything that we have to the table today, everything that we are, all of our feelings, all of our emotions, all of our expectations, we lay them at your feet. We trust that our view is limited. God, give us eyes to see. We surrender the control of trying to write our own story and we let you, the ultimate author of our life, take hold. God, we have hopes and desires, but ultimately we want you and we need you. We have to have you. We thank you for it. We thank you for this week. This holy set apart week. Draw us even nearer to you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anytime you're ready, you can come forward. You can just step out to your right from the front to the back. Let's come to the table together this morning.